Thank you all for joining us this morning. Again, my name is Pastor Nick. Um, If you would open up your Bibles, we will be in Psalm 51 this morning. We're beginning a series um, called The Heart of um, Repentance and Forgiveness. The Heart of Repentance and Forgiveness. In the 1990s, the Christian North American world began to recognize that premarital sexual relationships amongst teenagers had grown to a staggering high. Uh, This issue began to confront the church leaders, and they began to ask the question, okay, we see this issue, um, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to deal with it? And so they they began to come up with this idea um, that if we just started some of these programs that kids, students, teenagers, young adults would, would kind of leave that lifestyle that's happening in the world or living in their schools and pursue purity. The problem is um, they didn't really think through it well. Uh, one of these programs was called a purity ring. How many of you guys have heard of a purity ring? Uh, a few people uh, maybe it was more of an American, a U.S. thing. But a purity ring was something a, a, usually a mom or a dad would give their son or daughter um, in, in encouraging them, hey, uh, as you grow up, as you go through high school, uh, this ring will remind you that you should remain pure. You shouldn't have sexual relationships uh, before you get married. The problem is... Um, they didn't really think it through well. Uh, there was a Christian comedian I was listening to. He began to talk on this subject. And he unknowingly begins to explain the problem with it. And you know how comedians work, right? You listen to them and you start laughing. And you're like, ooh, ouch, I should not be laughing at this because it's too true. And one of the things he said was, uh, the purity ring well is good until you failed. Until you messed up. The purity ring was awesome until you made the mistake. And what did you do then? Did you cut it in half? Did you take it off? Honestly, I grew up in the church. I didn't come to faith of Christ until I was in university. I grew up in the church and I, I felt that, 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 that struggle. When I became a Christian my second, third year in university, it took me a while to come to grips uh, that being in the church was not about my performance, not about how well I could keep these set of rules, but about rest in Christ. It wasn't the church was not a place for people who have made it, who have figured it out but a place for sinners who find their rest in their Savior. As I said already, over the next three weeks, we're going to go through this topic of the heart of repentance and forgiveness. Today, we're going to deal with the topic of why it's such a blessing to repent. Why it's so much joy to have a heart of repentance. Next week, Pastor David is going to look like, what does it look like? Look at what it looks like to have a heart of repentance. What does it look like to have a heart of repentance? 
And then Dave, Pastor David's going to finish up with, what does it look like to forgive someone? What does it look like to forgive as someone who has been forgiven? What does it look like to forgive as someone who, uh, who has been forgiven? So today, as I said, we're looking at Psalm 51, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible on repentance. And we're going to look at what does the heart of repentance look like? And why should you listen to this? Why should you hear this? Repentance is an idea I know of. We've seen pastors walk across the stage. They turn around and they go the other way. And that's repentance. Why I think you should hear. Why I'm going to take up 45, 40, no, 30. I'm not Pastor David. 35 minutes of your time. Um, is because I believe in this main point. God transforms the repentant heart for his glory, for your good, and for your flourishing. Let me repeat that one more time. Why should you listen? Because God transforms the repentant heart. God does the work for his glory, for your good, and for your flourishing. So again, today we are in Psalm 51. Our sermon outline looks like this. The heart that is repentant knows their sin is first against God. Number two, the repentant heart knows they need the transforming work of God. The repentant heart knows they need the transforming work of God. The repentant heart transformed by God brings God glory. The repentant heart transformed by God brings God glory. So Psalm 51, again, is a unique psalm. We kind of read, um, Priya read from its counterpart in 2 Samuel 12. Psalm 51 kind of parachutes us into this scene. King David, for you who probably know King David, you know of King David, the guy who had the slingshot and killed Goliath. That's what we know about King David. What we don't really talk about King David is the fact that King David, in one point of his career, as he began to reign, come to power, he took abuse of that power in some way, and he did not go to war as he should have. He goes to the top of his palace, and as someone is bathing on the roof, which, roof, which I guess is a normal thing to do in their time, um, he peers and he begins to look at this woman. He then invites this woman to the palace. He impregnates her. And at that point, David realized his sin is now exposed somewhat. When you're the king, you have power to do stuff. David invites the, the Bathsheba is this woman's name. He invites her husband back into town. He's been at war fighting for King David. He invites his, her husband back into town. Her husband does not cooperate because he will not go back to his house and be with his wife. He stays at the palace with David. Uh, you would think David would figure this out and just be out with it, but no. Next David, what he does is he, he's powerful. He writes a note to Joab, the leader of the army, and says, hey, there's this guy Uriah. Take him to the front. Take him to the part of the war where he will die. In one chapter, David looks onto a woman who is not his wife. 
he takes a woman who is not his wife. He tries to um, manipulate the situation and then eventually kills the husband of this woman. In one chapter, your view of David has been now destroyed. He's no longer the guy who conquered Goliath. He is the guy who has sinned greatly. How beautiful is God's word that, he does not, that God's word does not try to sugarcoat who people are. And now we come to a psalm as Priya so eloquently read. Nathan the prophet, David thinks he gets away with it. Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him and says, Hey David, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. So this is what happened, and, and, David tell, and Nathan tells the story, and David gets angered and says, this man should die, and Nathan looks at David and says, that man is you. I don't know how David felt at that moment. We now have a psalm to help us understand. So David now begins to be reflecting on what he has just done. So let's begin. This is Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We'll stop there. David begins his psalm of lament by petitioning God. Petitioning is asking him, begging him, like requiring God, do something for me. These are imperatives. These are commands. And the first command David gives is have mercy on me. David knows that in this moment, he is without hope unless God does something. In this moment, David knows that God has every right to pour out his anger on this king who has, absurd, who has used his power abusively. And so he, therefore he goes to God and says, God, have mercy on me. When someone pleads for mercy, compassion, or favor, they are recognizing that there is an authority over them that has power over them. When, when someone pleads for mercy, they're saying, you have authority, you are more powerful than me, that means I must come to you. This authority may not always be good, but nevertheless, it still holds power. So David pleads with God in David's darkest moment. As the psalm progresses, we will begin to understand why David's pleading with God. But for now, he beseeches God for mercy. And next, David establishes the reason why. Why did he go to God? Why is he reaching out to God? Why can I come to God for mercy? And this is important to understand, right? We talk to God, we relate to God with basis, on the basis of how we understand God, right? If I think of God as an angry, angry man up in heaven who just wants to smite me with a lightning rod, I'm going to approach God as an angry man in heaven with a lightning rod who's going to smite me. So I'm going to pray to him. That's not the God of the Bible, first of all, but I'll leave it right there. So David approaches God based on how David has been taught God. How his mother and father raised him. How David would have to have written out the Pentateuch by hand, as the Levitical law says. And So as David reflects, he says, have a 
mercy on me, O God, according to what your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. David's getting this from Exodus 34, 6-7. through One of the darkest moments of Israelites' history. Israelites had just been brought and out of Egypt. What an amazing reality. We've seen the movies, right? The most powerful army around in the world at that time. God conquers with these little people called the Israelites. Israelites are now in the desert. Moses leaves for a few minutes, a few days, longer than minutes, let's be for real. He's up on the mountain. They're kind of getting nervous. And they begin to worship a calf, a golden calf. It just magically came out that way. Had no clue. That's how things work. God, uh, Moses comes down, and we get this phrase right here. The Lord, Lord, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, listen to these words. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. When David is praying, have mercy on me, O God. Where is he getting it from? He's getting it from his childhood. He's getting it from the word of God. So how do we relate to God? We relate to God based on the word of God. And now David is pleading to this merciful and gracious God that this God would act on David's behalf. This brings us to our first point. The heart that is repentant knows their sin is first against God. The heart that is repentant knows their sin is first against God. And so now David is saying, have mercy on me. And then he'll use three more imperatives in this section. And they're underlined here. It says, blot out, wash me. Cleanse me. How many, of you got, how many of you all remember the days when your computer did not automatically save your Word document? If you went to university in the, uh, I don't know, in my era, I guess, I remember like I had to actively think about I'm going to save my Word document. Nowadays, my Word document's up in the clouds somewhere on some server But when I was in university, you had to save it because if you didn't and something happened to your computer because I had a laptop and I would forget my charger, it dies. What happens to that Word document? Like it doesn't exist. This word blot right here is a blot out is is a term. It's it's like a writing term where, where God blots out. He erases all that has been written. While some of us have a sick feeling in our stomach as we thought about that term paper that uh, was now lost, we had to rewrite that day because we forgot to save it, we also can be just rejoiceful that God blots out our sin. Our God takes that ledger that is against us of, of the different aspects where we have rejected His goodness, rejected His love for our own worship of ourselves. And he blots it out and acts like it's never been there. Perfectly white. Untainted. Like that term paper, kind of, that you have to rewrite now. Have mercy on me, God. 
because you're good. Your steadfast love. Wash me. Cleanse me. David pleads with God, do a work in me. The question is, why does David go to God? Right? Honestly, in this point, I should be asking the question. So, David, um, I want to let you know something. Uh, you killed Uriah. <laughs> I don't know Uriah's parents, his family, but they are owed an explanation. Right? They're owed a reason why you, the king, usurped your power, you abused your power, and killed my son. But David eventually goes, David actually goes to God. And we see this in verses 3 and 4 where he seems to take this unique path. And it may seem weird that David would go to God. But what we learn in verses 3 and 4 is that all sin is ultimately sin against God. When David lusted over Bathsheba, he transformed a human being created in the image of God into an object. When he brought her into his house, David disregarded the goodness of God by believing God was not good in giving Bathsheba to another man. When he killed Uriah, David himself acted as God by taking the life of another. All sin is ultimately sin against God. Therefore, David goes to God. David says, For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's sin, while heinous against another human being, is ultimately a sin against God. Let's go to that second part of Exodus 34. This is what it says in Exodus 34, the end of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God must act against sin because that is who God is. Look at the words that he says. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So God, you would be you and you will be righteous. You will be holy and for you to be holy, something has to happen on my behalf because my sin right now is against you. Charles Simeon says this about repentance, the heart of repentance. One of the most essential marks of repentance is a disposition to see our sins as God sees them. Not extinguishing, extenuating their guilt by vain and frivolous excuses, by marking every circumstance that tends to aggravate their enormity. Let me just put that in simple words. Repentance sees my sin against God and doesn't try to make an excuse for it. My sin is against a holy God. And so I must go to him. I must go to him for repentance. Sometimes we think we can hide our sin, that no one else can see it. I remember when I was uh, in high school, um, my, my family would go to a water park. It's called Raging Waters. I would never go to a water park now. It makes me a horrible youth pastor. I do apologize. 
But at that point, I was okay with water parks. So we're at this water park, and we're waiting in the line to go on this ride. And as we're waiting, my little nephew Isaiah, he's four years old at this time, cute kid, chubby cheeks. He's in his little swim trunks with his little, his little shirt on. And he's here in, in the line, and we're going in the line. And next thing you know, um, my nephew is chewing gum. We're in swim trunks. I don't have gum. His mom doesn't have gum. My mom doesn't think I have gum. And we look at Isaiah, and Isaiah, we're like, hey, Isaiah, Isaiah what, what, what happened? He goes, I have no nothing. No, Isaiah, we know you're chewing gum. You know, nothing's in my mouth. And, and literally, he's, he's closing his mouth like a four-year-old does to try to hide something. And he clearly has given himself away. What I didn't tell you is, earlier in the line, there is a tree where everyone sticks their gum before they go onto the ride. <laughs> Isaiah did not realize that that was not free gum. And Isaiah had picked a piece and put it in his mouth. Clearly not hiding it from us. So often we think we can hide things from God. And we're just in our mouth. Nope, not there. God sees it all. That should scare us in one aspect. That a holy God sees every aspect of us. But according to his abundant mercy, according to his grace, he can blot out our sin. Every aspect of it. The repentant heart first sees their sin against God. This brings us to our second point. The repentant heart knows they can only be transformed by the work of God. The repentant heart knows that they can only be transformed by the work of God. This brings us to verse 5 and 6 right here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David knew that he had a problem that he couldn't fix. David knew that there was something wrong with him in the inside that he could not muster the strength to get over. And so he says, when I was born, from my birth, there was something wrong with me. This idea what I would brought forth in iniquity. He's not saying that his mom had, had extramarital relations that conceived him. What it says is, when I was born, there was a heart problem in me. And not a heart problem that gets fixed fixed in surgery. A heart problem that only God can work. And so next, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. So, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, if my problem is on the inside because I was born a sinner, therefore you need to work in me on the inside. You need to teach me wisdom in the in of my heart. And we see Jesus talk about the Pharisees in this way, Right? When he's in the Sermon on the Mount, he is rebuking them, saying, you have outward actions, but your inward heart hates me. You look good, but you run the other way when you actually see what you desire. And so David is saying, my problem right now, my problem is not so much that I have sinned against you. My problem, in fact, is I am a sinner and that my heart is against you. The Bible talks about us being born into our father, Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was bigger than just them sinning. 
Like, when they sin, they affected humanity forever. Therefore, you and I, when we are born, we're born with a problem. See, we sin because we're sinners. It's our heart disposition. It's what we are prone to. Therefore, we need God to work. We need God to change our hearts. So look at what David says next. He says this in verse 7 and 8. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David right now, this hyssop, we see this word in Exodus. We see this word in, in Leviticus. We see this word in Numbers. When we see the word hyssop, what we keep seeing is idea of cleansing. So when the, we talked about this last Good Friday, when Jesus went to the cross, remember they used a hyssop branch to give him wine. And I talked about the, the story in Exodus where the Passover is about to happen and they're called to take the hyssop branch and to pour it into blood and to use the hyssop branch to mark blood on the wall. And then we see this in Numbers 19.18. Then a clean person shall take a hyssop and dip it into water and sprinkle it on the tent and in all the furnishings and on the person who were in there and whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. So something has become unclean due to a person passing away in a certain tent. So they take a hyssop branch and they cleanse it. So David says, purge me with hyssop, with this, this cleansing material, and I will be clean. Wash me. This David does not say... Hey, let me, uh, let, me, let me figure this out, and then I'll come back to you. Uh, let, me, uh, let me get right with myself and get back to you. No, David, in the moment of his brokenness, says, you wash me, God. You cleanse me. And then he says this, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. When I was in university, I played baseball. Some of you guys know that. My, my third year, I had an injury. Um, I love baseball. Let's just be for real. I'm a Dodgers fan. You know that. Woo-hoo. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to like the Jays. I just can't. It's in my blood. But I'm a Dodger. So I loved baseball. I love baseball a little too much. I always tell people, I had three arm injuries, three shoulder injuries, when I was in college, I told people, God tried to tell me with the first one to stop. God tried to tell me with the second one to stop. Finally, God told me with the third one, you're done. At the end of my season, I, I was in so much pain, I couldn't sleep anymore. I'd roll over and wake up to find out I had a torn rotator cuff muscle, a torn labrum, and a torn um, bicep tendon. I go and I have my surgery, and I wake up. And John Belt's mom, you guys don't know John Belt. I played baseball at John Belt since I was in Little League in high school. John Belt's mom was my nurse. She walks to him into my room, and she said, I just want to let you know, Nick, the doctor told me you can't play baseball anymore. Your shoulder is in too bad of shape for you to try to play baseball. Like, it would just, it would do irreparable, like, you could not come back from it. A mom of someone I'd played baseball with my whole life had to come tell me, Nick, you cannot play baseball anymore. You would think that would destroy me. But at that point, I'd been a Christian now for about a year. 
At that point, I realized, God, you were doing something with this. God, you took my shoulder down to prove something to me that it is better to walk with you than to walk with my idol called baseball. So now I have a scar, I have three scars on my shoulder. I have pain in my shoulder that I feel every single day reminding me of an idol that controlled my life. And many of us here have those scars too, right? Many of us have scars of a past life before Christ. That we walk in here and in the world they would say, hey, that is horrible. And in us we say, praise the Lord, you used that to bring me back to you. You feel the pain still. You still remember the days. But because of Christ and his work on the cross, you have no shame in that. And now every single time I feel my shoulder, and I, and I, I can't even have my shoulder over my wife for a long time because it hurts so bad, I am reminded of an idol that controlled me. And I am reminded of a good God who took that idol out of my life. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David knew this. David felt the brokenness. If you actually look at David's life in the second half of that, the last half of 2 Samuel, his life was a disaster. The first, life you have, first part of David's life, you have killing Goliath. You have a massive kingdom that is kind of ruling. In the second half of his life, you have his son trying to kill him. You have chaos in the land. David's sin was ever before him. His actions with Bathsheba would change the course of his reign. So often we can try to do this without God. We can try to run this race without God, and God brings us back. Listen, this is Walter Brueggemann on this section. He says, self-indulgence, running after things, Trying to find our way without God is a fruitless exercise, and thank God, God brings us back. Self-indulgence, running after our own idols, running after our own way is, is fruitless exercise, and thank God, God brings us back. And he brings us to this second half, verses 9 through 12 of, The repentant heart knows they need the transforming work of God. And again, David goes, Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David again has these, these imperatives to God. You work in me. And, the, and we see in verse 10, 11, 12, that he wants God not only to work on his outside, but his inside. What was wrong with David? He was brought forth in iniquity. He needed God to change his heart. That's why we pray so often in here. That's why we have prayer meeting on Wednesday night. That's why we pray for our kids. I remember when I began, became a, became, I can't talk. When I became a pastor, I began to, to kind of teach my leaders um, this, this thought. And I said, if, if you do ministry right, the only way it's going to work is if prayer works. If you pray. Like, the only way God works is if you pray. Why? Because we are working with inward issues, not outward issues. Our inward heart shows, will be shown in our outward actions, and that's where the purity culture went wrong. They were trying to put an outward um, law on people to convince them of something, knowing that, forgetting that they needed an inward heart change. And so when they failed, they wondered why they failed. Because they didn't have a new heart. 
And then when they failed, they didn't run to Jesus. They ran away from the church because there is shame but no hope in Christ. Create God. Interesting, David says here, cast me not away from your presence. Take your spirit not from me. Both asking that David would maintain closeness here. It's very interesting. Most commentators think David is reminiscing on King Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 14, talking about Saul, said, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. His predecessor lost the Spirit because of his sin. And David, I think, is reflecting on this. God, please don't leave me. I cannot do this without you. I cannot walk forward if you are not with me. And praise the Lord, we do not lose the Spirit now. As Christians, if we are in Christ, we have the Spirit. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. We can quench him, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit, which means our sin has kind of, uh, we have not listened to the Spirit, so we're quenching his work, but he never leaves us. And what an amazing reality is that this Spirit is constantly with us and constantly bringing us back to God. All these verbs are asking us, Asking God to work in us. What becomes clear throughout biblical scripture is that we have the inability to change our lives. It's God who works in us. And God works through our repentance. 1 John 1, 9-10 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the one who changes your heart. God's the one who gives you the heart of repentance. God's the one who transforms you. What an amazing reality. We have no need to hide our sin from God. We have no need to hide our transgressions, act like they don't exist. God sees them. And God says, come to me. God, Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus Jesus died for the dirty, rotten, gross sin of his people. And he paid it all. God used the heart of repentance to return you to joy in him. Sometimes it takes the broken heart the broken bones, the scars to bring us to him. But may we rejoice. May we have the heart of joy that just is ruminating in this idea that God, you did not leave me on my own, but brought me back to you. Finally, this brings us to our last point. The heart, the repentant heart transformed by God brings God glory. The repentant heart transformed by, um, the repentant heart transformed by God brings God glory. This brings us to our last verses. Verses 13 through 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. David 
transitions now from petitions to saying, I will do something. I will act. David has petitioned God to change his heart. David has petitioned God to cleanse him. And now he says, because of your cleansing, because of your heart change, I will now sing to you. It's interesting that Christianity is one of the only singing religions. We sing in worship. We sing because we have joy. We sing because we know what God has done to us. We sing because that's all we can do sometimes is sing. And the last part of this psalm, David says, I want people to know you. I want people to know your work. I, I'll never forget. When I became a Christian in university, that's what I wanted. I'll never forget sitting next to six foot eight Josh, Josh Pond on my way up to Chico. It was a 13-hour bus ride. I felt bad for him because I wasn't going to share the gospel with him whether he wanted it or not. Then he had Darren behind me. I, I, I can see it as though it was yesterday. Darren Molinax was sitting right behind me. And I was just here, hey, this is what the gospel is, man. I had no clue what I was talking about. I just know Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I wanted Josh and I wanted Darren to know about it. And so for 13 hours, we talked. For 13 hours, I shared what God had been doing in my life. I will sing, I will teach, I, will, I just want people to hear. And that's what David was. Hey, God, thank you for working on my behalf. Thank you for giving me my repentant heart. Thank you for cleansing me. Now let me share the good news to other people. My mouth will declare your praise. My tongue will sing aloud. And then he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. God, you don't care about my outward actions. Yes, you do. Sorry, you do care about my outward actions, but you want my inward heart changed first. You want my heart to be changed. Therefore, I worship you. You don't want me just to do these actions to try to please you. Again, if you're here at church just to please God, you've missed the point. We come to church in worship. That's why this is a worship service, not a duty service. We worship God for what he's done, and that's what David says. I, I just can't give things to you because it's not going to make things better. You've worked in my heart. You've changed me, and now I worship. And so, it's God, you don't want sacrifices. You want a broken and contrite heart. You want my brokenness that comes to you saying, you're the only one who can work. You're the only one who can act. And it's really interesting as we finish up here. David has moved now. He, every aspect of this psalm has been personal, right? God changed me. God worked in me. God cleansed me. I will praise you. I will worship you. And now David... Understanding his role as king says this, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. David, for the first time, begins to ask on the basis of his kingdom. He says, God, I know my sin. I know what I deserve. I know how, you, um, how my reign, how my sin affects the kingdom. David is in a unique position as king of Israel. This is 2 Samuel 7, 14-16. This is God talking to David. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, that's another word for sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever and ever. Your throne shall be established. David knows that his duty as king of 
is affected by his sin. And we'll see this throughout the generations of king. It will say that this king of Israel was evil, therefore the people of, people, people of Israel were evil. This king was good, therefore the people of Israel followed Yahweh. David knows that, so he writes this last little phrase and says, Do good to Zion. God, please be careful, be good to them despite me. Please, God, don't let my sin affect the kingdom. And while David failed to uphold his duties as king, there was a descendant of David who did not. While David had to plead for mercy from God, his descendant did not. While David needed his sins forgiven, his descendant did not. There was a descendant of David who would be the perfect king. And while David sent one of his army, one of his men to die for him, to to hide his sin, Jesus would die for his people to blot out their sins. While David used his authority as king to abuse the people, Christ used his authority as king and set it aside to uplift us as his people. While David did not consider Bathsheba worth anything and took her into his home, Christ, your king, considered you most everything, considered you more important than himself, and stepped down from heaven and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How awesome it is as we read this psalm and we we see this heart of repentance that we can repent of our sins and come to a king who died on the cross for those sins. A king whose authority is good. A king who loved you and sacrificed his life for you. This promise at the end says, your, at end of 2 Samuel 16 says, Your throne shall be established forever. And that is true. Right now, King Jesus sits on his throne as your king, as my king. If you're in here, if you're not a Christian, this is the beauty of the gospel. That the king of the universe died on the cross for you. He sacrificed his life for you. While, while many kings sacrificed the lives of their men for their good, The ultimate king sacrificed his life for your good. As Christians, we still need the heart of repentance. We still need the heart that looks to God as our only hope. That we have sin in our lives, we repent of our sin, and that brings us joy. There's sin that quenches the spirit and hinders our walk, but in Christ we can repent of that and be free of it. It never severs, just hinders. If you're in here, if you call yourself a Christian and you are walking in deep sin, I ask you just to, to, to come out. I would ask you to, to reach next to a person and just tell them. If a, a, safe, a safe person, you can talk to David or myself. If you are hiding deep sin, I want you to come because right now you are quenching the spirit and you are missing the joy that comes from salvation in Christ. If you're not a Christian, I ask you to come repent of your sin just as much and find the joy in Christ alone who died on the cross for your sin. This song is beautiful. This is is from the Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. 
Vile I to fountain fly, wash me, Savior, oh, I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Oh, my Savior died for me. Let me pray. Father, we come and we are so thankful that we can come before you as broken sinners with no fear because your son died on the cross for us. That your son paid the eternal punishment that we deserve. And Lord, as we are about to take communion, as we are about to reflect on the truth of the cross, may our hearts be overwhelmed by your goodness that saved us through your giving of your son's love. May anybody in here who's holding on to sin deeply, may they be confronted with that, that they might be restored to faith, that their joy in Christ must, might be greater. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.